spoken, so who can refuse to proclaim his message? So Amos says here that whatever God was doing, he would reveal his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Often in times like this, like what we're going through right now, and this is an unprecedented time, but there have been other times, as we all know, throughout the course of history, recent and in days past, where it, 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 it seems like we have had plenty of so-called prophets telling us what those secrets supposedly are, online, on television, in the mail, however we may receive these messages. And these messages range from the cause and effect pragmatists who say, well, you know, it's all because the governments didn't prepare properly for the pandemic. That's why we're in this mess. To the strikingly detached moralizers who say, it's all because the world needs to repent of sexual sin. God's judging us. To the valid but separate unrelated concerns, it's reminding us about the ecological and environmental crises and global warming and all of these things. And, and we're sometimes, have you found this? We're sometimes left with the impression that the coronavirus is providing people with an opportunity and a megaphone with which to say more loudly things they were wanting to say for a long time anyway. Not directly related, but this becomes a platform to, for them to, to shoot off at the mouth about all these other issues they have as well. And this is not to say that there are not significant and some rather obvious lessons to be learned in all of this, I was recently listening to the story of a Surrey resident who had just been released from Royal Columbia Hospital after a terrible but successful battle with COVID-19. He horrifically recounted the way the disease was literally leaving him in an asphyxiated condition, unable to breathe. He had other pre-existent health issues which made him especially vulnerable and added to his complications. But he shared firsthand how the disease runs rampant among those who are already in bad shape from other ailments and thus likely not only to catch COVID-19 themselves but pass it on. I heard his heartfelt plea to listeners to exercise extreme care in this pandemic, even, even though, he said, we are moving towards reopening things, and that's wonderful. Please, he said, exercise care. It was a very moving story. You see, this was a hard-headed, feet-on-the-ground, first-hand experience and perspective of what is actually going on. It wasn't the sideways moralistic leap. You know, bad things are happening, say some people. Bad things are happening? That's because abortion. 
LGBTQ+, rights, etc., all that stuff. That's why this is happening to us. God's wrath is being poured out. And this is, this is often what we hear. It's not a good way to go. And of course, lingering behind it all, there are no doubt larger questions of geopolitics. We've heard them or thought them or asked them ourselves. I mean, why did China try to muzzle reports from the World Health Organization? Why did Iran catch the disease so early? What effect did Britain's concentration on Brexit have on health policies? To what degree, closer to home for us here, to what degree did the Pacific Dental Conference held here in Vancouver influence the spread of the disease here at home? Actions, as we know, have consequences, and so do inactions. So does inaction. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the story of the people of God, the greatest disaster of all was the Babylonian exile. And the great prophets interpreted that event in terms of the large-scale punishment for Israel's sin. This goes back to the covenant promises and warnings, the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy, and you can look at those yourself. We don't have time to get into all of that today. But books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel made it shockingly clear Israel had done what Deuteronomy said they shouldn't, in particular, worshiping pagan gods and the behavior that goes with that. And in consequence, God had done what God said he would do. The book called Lamentations, which is one of the most moving long pieces of poetry ever written, Lamentations looks out upon a city from which people have vanished, Jerusalem. In my study here on these premises, I have a print of Rembrandt's depiction of Jeremiah, who is the author of Lamentations. And Rembrandt depicts Jeremiah sitting despondently in despair as the city and the temple burn in the background. The image, for me, has a haunting effect in general, but especially as I think about seeing images as we all saw them not too long ago of the empty streets of our metro Vancouver region and other parts of the world. As we looked at them via our screens, our news feeds, streets normally full and bustling with people, empty, barren, like ghost towns. And the prophet Jeremiah weeps. He weeps for the innocent children crying for food, 
and finding none. Is it nothing, he says in Lamentations, it's on the screen for us, is it, is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach turns. My, he gets very explicit and graphic here in his language. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. We can kind of resonate with Jeremiah's lament here, his weeping in these days that we've been walking through. Remembering the people's ancient traditions of faith seems to only make matters worse for the prophet. But you, O oh Lord, he says, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is, he's going on. This is a little later on in Lamentations 5. Why do you forget us? Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Are, are you feeling these words at all today? Many in our world, many of us perhaps, even in this room and our congregation, have felt we can relate with where Jeremiah is coming from in this. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored Renew our days as of old unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The great prayers for restoration elsewhere in the Older Testament are quite explicit. And here we are in exile because we sinned. So now we turn to you and ask for forgiveness. This was the essence of them. Daniel 9 Daniel 9 is perhaps the clearest of these. Daniel says in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. So we read these passages and others like them. And our line of thinking goes something like this. Well, if that is how it worked on the large scale, or how it worked with the Babylonian exile of the people of God in that day, That's how it worked for them, at least. Then on the smaller scale, on the personal scale, it sometimes looks as though it ought to be the same. 
There's an awful moment in 1 Kings, some of you may remember the story, when a widow losing her only son, watch this, she assumes that it's because of her sin. This was a common idea. This concept of, 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 of immediately going, it's, it's the sin of immediately going to that. It's not a new concept. It's been around for millennia. This widow, losing her only son, assumes that it's because of her sin. And this was a common idea in the ancient world. Their whole understanding of the pantheon of gods, the context of, of, of deities in that day, uh, was very transactional. If, if you did the right things and lived the right way, then you kept the gods happy. If you didn't, then the gods were upset with you. And therefore, you have the problem you have, whatever that may be. For this woman, it was the, the death of her son. And she immediately goes to this retribution principle, this transactional relationship with God. It must be sin. She had the prophet Elijah living in her home at the time. He was staying under her roof. She, in fact, had created a special room for him to call his own. And so she thought, her, her train of thinking was immediately, there must be some sin because I've got the man of God dwelling in my home with me and the, the, the one who represents Yahweh. To, so there must be some sin, and that's why this has happened. This has triggered her son's death as a punishment for sin in her life. Are you tracking with me here? This is how she's thinking. Not so different from the way we often think. As we treat our relationship with God, our relationship, He desires relationship, but we treat that as a transactional arrangement. I do this, you do this, God. I don't do this, this is what happens. God doesn't operate that way. And Elijah raises the boy to life Resurrection happens, and in doing so, Elijah immediately puts that suggestion that it's because of sin. He, he immediately, by doing what he did, raising the boy up, immediately puts that suggestion back where it belongs. A lie. A deception. But how many know, even so, the rumor still persists, doesn't it? We deal with this today. We're dealing with this in, in, in different ways and measures throughout this whole pandemic. The rumor persists that ill fortune and ill behavior are always linked in a straightforward causal chain. Psalm 1 informs us that good people will flourish and wicked ones will come to a bad end. Psalm 37 
which in some ways is an extended meditation on the same theme, has the striking verse in verse 25. Once I was young, now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. We read that and we sharply and quickly inhale because we have seen them. So what do we make of this? We've seen them on our streets. We've seen them in our hospitals. On our screens. On our hearts. In our care homes, our nursing homes. We've seen them. What do we make of this? How do we read this passage and understand it properly then? We should probably allow the psalmist the benefit of the doubt here. He is describing what was for him normal times. Play fair and things will work out. Mess around and trouble will come. But we don't live in normal times. Perhaps we never really have. What do we say then? What do we say? How do we understand this? Try explaining to someone dying of COVID-19 in a crowded refugee camp that all of this is because of sin. You go for it. You try explaining that to them. Blame the victim, in other words. That's always a popular and effective line. I don't recommend it. Fortunately for our sanity and our view of biblical inspiration and authority and interpretation and application in our lives, fortunately there's a more well-rounded picture. Take, for instance, Psalm 73. The writer knows the normal line. Good things come to good people, bad things to bad. Again, that whole idea of retribu retribution, transactional arrangement. But it hasn't worked out like that in Psalm 73. Because in Psalm 73, if you look at it, which I encourage you to do. Again, we don't have time to look at it together this morning, but look at it. In Psalm 73, you'll notice that the wicked are the ones that are flourishing. And the righteous are the ones being crushed under feet. Well, what about this transactional relationship we have? What about the... I live this way, God does this. I'm good, I experience blessing. If I don't, I know I don't. What, what did, Psalm 73 doesn't give that to us. Psalm 73 messes that whole idea up. The wicked are flourishing and the righteous are crushed under their feet. And it's only then when the poet enters into God's temple that a larger, transcendent, healing, viewpoint can be perceived. You read it 
And partway through Psalm 73, the, the psalmist then says, the poet says, but then I went in to the temple, to the house of the Lord. And there's a shift that happens in the poem. Then go to Psalm 44. We'll, we, I will read some of Psalm 44. Psalm 44, you recall, was our text from last week. Part of it, anyway, the, the last portion of it. Psalm 44 specifically denies good brings good, bad brings bad. It specifically and explicitly denies that viewpoint. The poet knows that God has faithfully looked after His people in times past. But now, truly horrible things have happened, despite that fact. And the poet insists in verses 17 to 22, despite all of this, he says, we have not forgotten you, Lord. We have not broken covenant with you. We have not betrayed you. Our hearts, O oh God, are still yours. Our steps have not strayed from your path. Yet you have crushed us, leaving us in this wilderness place of misery and desperation and pandemic. With nowhere else to turn, death's dark door seems to be the only way out. If we had forsaken your holy name, wouldn't you know it? You'd be right in leaving us. If we had worshipped before other gods, no one would blame you for punishing us. God, you know our every heart's secret. You know we still want you. Because of you, we face death threats every day. Like martyrs, we are dying daily. We are seen as lambs lined up to be slaughtered as sacrifices. Are you, are you picking up on the messianic hint in this as well? As this points down the way to Jesus, even. It's interesting that Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 8. Remember Romans 8? We all love Romans 8. Because Romans 8 contains that one verse that we often often, often so misunderstand and misconstrue. For all things work together for the good. How many know that verse? We all know that verse, even if we don't know where it's found in the Bible. Well, Paul in Romans 8 quotes Psalm 44. Isn't that interesting? Particularly these last few words, we are seen as lambs lined up to be slaughtered as sacrifices. This is in the same passage of for all things work together. Like we, Romans 8 is one of the most important places for understanding this whole mystery that we're looking at today. And we'll visit that more closely later on. So stay tuned. There are other psalms which also state the problem and leave it with a kind of puzzled shrug of the shoulders. How many of you have read through the Psalms? And I encourage you to do that. The Psalms 
or a beautiful book of poetry and hymnody. They were the songs of the people of God. And, and they, they, the Psalms express every possible human emotion that you and I would ever experience. They're found in the Psalms. And there are certain Psalms that if you're like me, you know, you've read them and on first glance you kind of think, well, well what does that, what's that mean? And, you know, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and move, oh, the next, I like the sound of this next Psalm. I think I'll hang out there for a while. And Psalm 44 can be one of those Psalms. Psalm 89 is like what I've just described. God has made wonderful promises. We basked in their sunshine for a while, but now the sky is dark and everything has gone wrong and there is no hope in sight. End of Psalm. How do you like that? Sunshine, blue skies, big dreaming. Now the sky's dark, everything's gone wrong, and there's no hope in sight. The psalm ends. And it leaves you there. What's with that? But you know what? You know what I've come to find? And in fact, so appreciate there's refreshing honesty to that. Because how many of us really, if we're honest with ourselves, with God, with one another, there are times where we feel like that. God, what's happened? We had blue skies and sunshine. Now it's dark and hopeless. End of story. So we feel. Or the darkest spot of all, there's Psalm 88. It is harrowing, and it's also messianic in its implications. The poet says this, Everyone sees my life ebbing out. They consider me a hopeless case. They see me as a dead man. They've all left me here to die, helpless, like one who is doomed for death. They're convinced you've forsaken me. Certain that you have forgotten me completely, abandoned, pierced, with nothing to look forward to but death. Oh Lord, why have you thrown my life away? Will you keep turning the other way every time I call out to you? I've had to live in poverty and trouble all my life. Now I'm humiliated, broken, and helpless before your terrors, and I can't take it anymore. All my loved ones and friends keep far from me. Sounds a little bit like these days we've been in, yeah? We call it social distancing. All of my loved ones and friends keep far from me, leaving me all alone with only darkness as my friend. Now, maybe that hasn't been the case for you, but I have talked to a number of people through this whole experience that that is how they would describe their days. And I think, honestly, all of us in varying degrees have experienced this. These psalms, how do we read the Older Testament? These psalms, these words of the prophets, these are the foothills. Already gloomy and frightening for us. 
Yet, we sense a darker mountain looming behind them. And it's called the book of Job. (laughs) And we'll look at that next week because we're out of time today. The book of Job. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that because no one will show up next week. (laughs) It only gets better. It really does as we walk through this. Next week, the book of Job.